Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. On the morning of November 8, 2018, a PG&E transmission tower blew apart in a windstorm, igniting a vegetation fire that, only a few short hours later, engulfed the town of Paradise. Basically, I watched my house in the rearview mirror burning up. And forced thousands of residents to flee for their lives. I thought I was going to die on the road. I had flames on my windshield. It's, it's just too hard for me to even think about it. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and on today's program, we're going to revisit the campfire, still the most destructive and deadliest wildfire in state history, through the reporting of Lizzie Johnson. She's an enterprise reporter for The Washington Post, who spent the past several years piecing together the stories of that devastating day, and has written about what she's turned up in her new book, Paradise, one town struggle to survive an American wildfire. She joins us now to discuss the book and what lessons this wildfire disaster still holds as California faces one destructive fire season after another. Lizzie Johnson, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks for having me. So obviously for the people of Paradise, they will never forget what happened that day. But for those of us who didn't experience it firsthand, it can be easy to lose sight of just how shocking this event really was, especially when the fire disasters have just been piling up year after year, fire season after fire season in California. But what you've written, I think, is just a really comprehensive account of how this fire unfolded based on both your time reporting it while the fire was still raging and then hundreds of interviews you conducted later with people involved in the disaster. So 
why, in your view, is it important for us to make sure that we remember this tragedy clearly with, you know, so much else that has happened since then? Right. Yeah. You know, I think that with these fires that we're seeing every single summer, they can all start to feel very abstract. You know, you just hear about the biggest fires and the deadliest fires and, you know, they get topped year after year. And I think it's important to remember the town of paradise and the campfire specifically because it has become such a touchstone showing what we could stand to lose if we don't, you know, start taking climate change seriously and realizing all of the different factors on the landscape that are causing these fires to explode out of control. And uh, it's just, you know, it's a place where even though the fire is out, it will continue to live on in the minds of so many people. And there's something we could learn from that town and about how it's trying to come back and what the people are doing now. Yeah, that is a theme that runs through your book, that while this is a singular tragedy that uh, surpasses so many other fire disasters that we've seen in California, the things that made it so deadly from a wildfire to the sorts of fuel management that were uh, happening around Paradise to the infrastructure that folks were depending on, you know, the, the failings in all those areas are failings that are faced by many communities throughout California and throughout the Western United States. So really, there are a lot of lessons to be drawn here. Right. I mean, it's everything from how we build and where we build to how we've managed the forest in the past to uh, our infrastructure, the electrical infrastructure that's in really fire prone areas and hasn't been hardened. Um, You know, we're living with the legacy of a lot of bad decisions that were made over the years. And we need to confront that, you know, these fires aren't going away. And so we need to start changing the way that we approach them. I'm hoping you could speak right off the top right now a little bit about the reporting that went into this book, because as we mentioned, you know, hundreds of uh, interviews went into this. You actually uh, moved part time to Paradise in the aftermath of uh, the the campfire, and uh, just so that you could get even more interviews in. Uh, I think I read that you even enrolled in a professional firefighting academy to learn <laughs> as much as you could about firefighting. So this is a story that you were really, it seems, trying to tell as completely as you could. Uh, expand a little bit more on that reporting and why it was so important to you to go so in depth into this. Right. I get really obsessive about my reporting. Um, Mm. To tell a story well, I need to understand what happened and understand all of the complexities of a place and its people. And so I think after the campfire, you know, there was this general sense of, well, what actually did happen, right? It was such a big fire and it exploded so quickly that so often you just heard stories of all of the people escaping and there wasn't a clear picture of what it actually made the fire into what it was and all of the different factors that caused the landscape to become so dry. And so the best way I could figure out to learn and to understand was A, to better understand fire. So I enrolled in a professional firefighting academy with a county in Northern California. And then B, just really immersing myself in the place. So I stayed with the local family in Paradise and you know, I, I would never be able to visit Paradise before the fire, but I could get to know it through what it was after the fire and uh, just taking walks around town in the evening, seeing all of the beautiful things that people talked about and, you know, getting the chance to go to Starbucks every morning and talk with the baristas and go to the local supermarket and eating green curry at the Thai restaurant, just having conversations with people where they were at and trying to better understand what had happened. Um, Cause I wanted to do the place justice. I wanted people to understand what paradise was and to, to give people 
a fuller sense of what had been wiped off the map, that it wasn't just, you know, 26,000 people, but it was a place with traditions and culture and a place that people really deeply loved and that was lost in a very unfathomable and violent way. Speaking with Lizzie Johnson about her new book, Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire, and maybe just to set the stage for some of the stories that we're going to be telling a little bit later on in the interview, uh, tell us a little bit more about Paradise. This was uh, a town that, for many people, really lived up to its name uh, in terms of the opportunities that it was giving for affordable living and just... Uh, really clean air, idyllic scenery, uh, just everything that uh, a lot of folks would want uh, in in a place to call home. Right. Yeah. So it was a town of 26,000 people about uh, tucked in the Sierra Nevada, tucked above the Sierra Nevada foothills above the city of Chico in Butte County. And it was a very affordable place. People in town always joked that the demographic was either newlywed or nearly dead because, you know, it was a bunch of retirees who really wanted to live near nature and families seeking affordability that they couldn't find in other places in the state, right? People who have been priced out of Los Angeles or San Francisco and wanted to raise their kids in a place that felt like home where they could have a backyard and could let the kids ride down the street on their bikes. Um, You know, Paradise had its issues like any place. Uh, You know, there were people that weren't living off of very much. Um, A lot of people who were disabled and, um, but it was a place that people really deeply loved. They had these long held community traditions like Johnny Appleseed Day, they had Gold Nugget Weekend and um, people loved that town and it was heartbreaking to them to lose it. Yeah. All right, and we're going to get into some of those uh, stories of uh, tragedy and loss in just a second. Uh, real quick, just to reintroduce you, we are speaking with Lizzie Johnson, once again, an Enterprise reporter for The Washington Post, who previously spent six years as a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle during that time, reported on the campfire and its aftermath. Uh, based on that reporting and many, many interviews, she has now written a book called Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. We're speaking to her right now to try to get a handle on this tragedy and what it has to tell us right now. Uh, So up next in the program, uh, let's get into some of the stories that you captured in your book. And uh, uh, first off, uh, before we uh, get to your reporting specifically, I actually want to bring in some of the voices of the tragedy into our conversation. And to do that, uh, I'm just going to play a quick snippet of the reporting that uh, my former colleague, uh, then KCBS reporter Jenna Lane, produced in the wake of the campfire. Uh, Here we're going to hear from Travis Wright, uh, who fled the inferno with his neighbors Paul and Susie Ernest. Uh, when the flames caught up with them, Paul and Susie sheltered behind a rock. Travis, though, uh, was separated and uh, managed to find relative safety as the flamed roared past him and the rest. Uh, here, Jenna recounts what Travis found as he surveyed the aftermath of the conflagration. He stood on the bald, blackened bluff and took a 360-degree video. It is almost entirely black at 11 o'clock in the morning, and at the end, behind the shadow of a boulder, are the silhouettes of Paul and Susie. They were kind of quiet. There was no more screaming, so I was like, oh, no. He stopped recording, afraid of what he would find. But they were alive. I knew he was bad because when I tried to help him up, I grabbed his hand, and it did. his skin did slide off, so I was like, oh, geez, buddy, you're not good. And I could see Susie was pretty bad too because I could see her feet and they were all black and it's like I wondered where her shoes were. Her shoes had melted off. Above Paul's leather boots, his shin bones were showing. To get help, Travis had to leave them. He hopped onto his quad, which had not burned, and started back up the hill. Despite their injuries, the couple survived the day and ultimately Susie managed to recover. 
Paul, though, succumbed to illness related to his burns after a nine-month battle. Now, I, I play that tape not to be gratuitous, but just to highlight the fact that for those who were caught up in this disaster, many of them faced an intensity of experience that very few of us will know within our own lifetimes. Uh, just difficult for many of us to imagine. And uh, that is the challenge that was presented to you, Lizzie Johnson, in uh, taking up this book. And I think you captured a lot of that intensity uh, really well in your reporting. Yeah, you know, you think about the number of people in that town, again, 26,000 in Every single one of them has a story like that from that morning. You hear about people who were sitting on the skyway in their cars and the fire was so hot that the tires started deflating or the paint started melting off of the side of their car. You hear about people who, you know, didn't have a way out of town. And so they had to run and hopefully find someone who would take them out. I talk about in my book, there was a woman who had just had a baby and she found herself in a car with a stranger um, had gotten separated from her husband and they had to make the decision that if the fire got close and it came down to it, he would take her baby and run. And I think for those of us that live so far away, it's really hard to fathom having to make those hard decisions on a day that should have been normal. You know, it was a Thursday morning. No one expected this to happen. And, you know, those, those memories of that day live on in these people's minds still. I don't know how you ever truly escape something like that. Absolutely. And sort of the weird contradiction that you also capture in this book is that on the one hand, this is an area that was primed to burn and people knew it. There had been fires in the region in the decades prior and uh, fire preparedness was on the minds of many people. And yet the speed and ferocity of these flames surprised even fire experts that were on the scene. People just couldn't believe how quickly it was approaching the city and then engulfing the city. Uh, so, you know, none of us could have been prepared for this. Uh, folks in, in paradise also were not prepared for this. Right. You know, at one point, the campfire was moving at a speed of a football field a second. And it just goes to show the ways that these fires are really changing. Um if you look at all of the big conflagrations we've seen over the past few years, they just top all of the, the state charts for biggest fires and most destructive fires and are acting in ways that firefighters have never really seen before. You know, a couple of years ago, we saw the car fire up near Reading and that spawned a fire tornado. And I remember for months, people couldn't even wrap their heads around what had happened. So there's this sense of, you know, even if you think that you're prepared for a fire and paradise for all intents and purposes was more prepared than a lot of places across California and across the West. Um, even if you think you're prepared, you know, you're, you're prepared for the fires that you've seen in the past. And those aren't the fires that we're seeing now. Yeah. And talk a little bit about the weather conditions that pushed this uh, fire forwards, it, really strong winds. And that's what ultimately brought down the hook that was supporting the uh, PG&E uh, high voltage line that uh, sparked the flame. And, and then it was uh, the winds that uh, really pushed the fire forward. Exactly. So that in this uh, river canyon near Paradise, as you mentioned, there was a PG&E electrical tower. And the winds were blowing so hard that morning that it caused this threadbare hook that was holding up a very high voltage line to snap. And so that started the fire and conditions were just unseasonably dry. The winds were really strong. There had been a red flag warning forecasted for that day. And so uh, there was just no way of stopping it. It blew straight into paradise and wiped the town out in a matter of hours. Yeah. 
Let's talk uh, about another one of the stories that you highlight in uh, the book, the story of uh, Kevin McKay, who was an elementary school bus driver and uh, teamed up with uh, a pair of teachers to drive uh, a bus full of children to safety. Tell us a little bit more about that story. Right. So Kevin is just an incredible man. He had worked managing a Walgreens for many, many years. And after his dad died of cancer, he realized that he wanted to live a life of more purpose and get a career that he felt really passionate about. And for him, that was going back to college to get his teaching degree. He wanted to become a history teacher at Paradise High, his alma mater. And so as part of that, he got a job driving a school bus part-time, which would allow him to make a little money while he was doing classes. And so when the campfire ignited, he found himself on this bus with 22 kids that he didn't know, and two teachers who he also didn't know, and they had to figure out how to get out of town. And so he, uh, you know, he told the teachers to make manifests in case the only thing getting pulled off of that school bus were bodies. And when the little kids started passing out from carbon monoxide and getting sleepy from having been on this hot, hot bus in the smoke for so many hours, he literally took the shirt off his back and told the teachers to rip it up into tiny pieces so the children could breathe through masks. Um, and just again, like imagine being in that situation where you went into work one day and found yourself tasked with something completely different altogether. And what they faced as they tried to escape was just lines and lines of cars moving very slowly out of the very few roads that led out of paradise. I think a lot of people are familiar with uh, the geography at this point and, and why it was so hard for uh, people to get out of town. And so this was not a, a high-speed chase by any means. The, the horror of this was being stuck in one spot as the smoke and the flames were gaining strength around you. Right. And so many people that morning talk about how uh, the worst feeling of it was feeling like they were trapped and that they were going to die and there was nothing they could do about it, right? Because like you mentioned, Paradise had very few evacuation routes. It was up on this ridge. And so uh, traffic really bottlenecked and people were sitting in complete darkness because the smoke had blotted out the sun and just had to sit there and watch the fire come closer and closer, wondering if they were going to be able to make it out or not, whether they would survive or not. Speaking once again with Lizzie Johnson, a reporter for the Washington Post, also the author of the new book, Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. And there were so many stories of people really trying to find a way out, find the right thing to do as they face this unprecedented disaster. Let's talk a little bit about the response from the city council and the city leaders, because uh, there again, the uh, the evacuation plan was in place, but they hadn't planned for a scenario where they would have to evacuate the entire town all at once. And so very quickly, they were realizing that their plan was not up to the challenge of, of this moment. And there was just a lot of uncertainty uh, for those folks, even as the, the, the city council building itself was facing destruction. Right. You know, uh, it was really a well-known problem that Paradise might catch on fire someday. In the firefighting community, they referred to it as the Paradise problem, right? What do you do if the town catches on fire? Because there are so few evacuation routes and uh, the land was really, really flammable. It was um, bordered by two geological chimneys, these two big canyons. And so the town council had practiced doing an evacuation and um, had thought about what to do if a big fire were to come to town. But again, their, their big flaw was that they had planned for fires based on what they had seen in the past. 
And the campfire wasn't like anything that town or really the state had ever seen before. And so their plans quickly fell apart. Um, and it was just a mass exodus as people all tried to leave at the same time. It wasn't that very orderly zone by zone approach that they had hoped would happen. All right. Uh, got about 10 more minutes left in the program. So going to introduce you uh, one last time. This, by the way, is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi, speaking right now to Lizzie Johnson. She is an enterprise reporter for The Washington Post. Her new book is Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. And we're going through the many stories that unfolded that day and, and finding some disturbing parallels between the challenges that they faced and what led to that tragedy and uh, what many communities are still facing today uh, throughout California and the rest of the West. Uh, Let's get now to the role of PG&E in all this. Uh, We mentioned a little bit earlier the failed equipment that was ultimately found to be responsible for igniting the campfire. Uh, The PG&E pled guilty to uh, a case, but uh, I think uh, many victims are not entirely satisfied with the penalties that they have faced. Uh, Where does accountability stand uh, for that company at this point? Right. So PG&E was fined $3.5 million, um, was charged with 85 felonies, 84 counts of homicide, and one count of illegally starting a fire. And for a lot of people that didn't feel like enough, particularly those whose family members died in the fire. Um, just awful, gruesome deaths that were totally preventable if PG&E had, had noticed that the hook was wearing down and replaced it. Um, so again, there's that sense of, you know, PG&E was held accountable. It was proved, proven that they started the fire. But again, I think it's really hard for a lot of people to see that. And then, you know, the next summer here of PG&E starting another fire. We saw this this summer too, because um, you know, not far from where the campfire started is the ignition point of the Dixie Fire. And from what PG&E has told the state regulatory agency, it seems like they were likely responsible for starting that fire as well. And so that just stings, right? Like if your family member died in the campfire, then you see the utility that started that fire starting even more fires. It doesn't feel like they were held accountable. Yeah, and here once again, uh, we see another community that has been severely damaged, uh, in this case, uh, Greenville. So the destruction continues. Uh, What was the major deficiency on the part of PG&E? Does it just boil down to insufficient inspections of their equipment? You know, uh, the district attorney in Butte County explained it really well. He was like, PG&E has all of this equipment and they used a run to failure approach. And so that's not dissimilar to buying a used car and never changing the oil, never changing the tires, and just driving the car until it's all apart. Um, there's a lot of parallels between that analogy and how PG&E has treated its equipment in the past. And so, you know, in the Feather River Canyon, that tower that started the campfire, there was a hook that had been on that tower for close to a century, outlived all of the people that helped install it, and uh, PG&E just wasn't doing inspections the way it should have. And so, no one noticed that that hook was about to collapse. It only would have cost $19 to replace the part itself and, you know, a very preventable thing. So you see these problems in the company and across its infrastructure in Northern California. And increasingly, as conditions get drier, um, it's starting more fires. Yeah, it's just uh, maddening to know that such a small flaw, such a seemingly before the fact inconsequential oversight could uh 
cause such devastation and destruction. Um, but, uh, of course, as, as we've been discussing the whole time, uh, while PG&E bears a, a lot of the blame for this disaster, there are a whole lot of other factors that are coming together to make these wildfires more destructive. Uh, and you uh, actually weave into the story that you tell some of the folk legends of uh, the Konkau uh, tribe, which is a, a Native American tribe that existed in this part of California before it was settled by uh, European settlers. And, and they have their own uh, legends about fire and the destructive capacity of fires. Uh, and you suggest in your work that, uh, and a lot of other people, we should add, uh, have been suggesting over the last many years that we would do well to learn the lessons that uh, Native Americans have accrued over many generations. And uh, it's forgetting that, uh, those lessons that have caused uh, a lot of the problems that we're facing now in terms of uh, fire management and uh, fuel management. Right. You know, when white settlers came over from Europe, they brought this belief with them that fire was evil. And so that's something that indigenous people didn't believe in. They knew that fire was a healthy part of the landscape and they used it as a tool um, to do burns that made everything healthier. It helped them grow more food and that approach was really uh, stomped out and stripped away as those native populations were murdered and um, you know, white settlers imprinted their beliefs on the landscape. And as a result, we have this enduring legacy of all of these forests that are really diseased and overgrown. And uh, there is something we could learn from how those native populations once treated the environment and how they used fire as a tool. And we need to start getting creative and learning from the past if we're gonna figure our way out of this current problem. Yeah. Do you have the sense that some of these lessons are sinking in? I mean, just given how many of these disasters have occurred in recent years, and you also think about the smoke and how many people's lives that impacts, it really is just a vivid reminder of how much the world is changing and how bad these disasters can be. Do you have the sense that these lessons are hitting their mark? I think people are finally, you know, starting to have the same conversation about realizing that this is a problem and we need to talk about it more so than we did a few years ago. But I think that it's going to take time to find solutions. I think that right now we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire in a town burning down. And it seems like we're on a trajectory that we can't stop. So I don't know you know, what the long-term solutions would be, but I think that people are finally at least on the same page and talking about it. All right. Uh, well, we only have a couple of minutes left, but to close out the conversation, I want to talk about uh, the rebuilding of paradise. Uh, obviously, a lot of people have moved away permanently, but some people are trying to move back and rebuild. What does that look like? What does that decision look like uh, for people, whether or not to go back? And uh, how far has the rebuilding process come in the last uh, nearly three years? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an intensely personal decision. I remember when I was up living in paradise part-time, people would feel very hurt when they confronted that question from outsiders that like, are you really gonna rebuild? Is that the safest thing? And you have to remember that for some of these people, their families had lived in paradise for decades, you know, entire generations that lived within a few blocks of each other. These were people that had mountains in their bloods. And for them, there is no other choice than to rebuild. But for other people, it's more complicated, right? It's hard to go back to a place where you felt such danger and where every summer you're getting worried about being evacuated or seeing smoke fill the sky. And 
at that point, the more natural decision is to leave and to, to build a new life somewhere else. I think we, we saw that with so many community leaders that ended up leaving, you know, the, the Paradise High Principal and the school superintendent and the Paradise Lake Keeper, people that just realized that they didn't want to keep living in the shadow of this disaster. So people are coming back. They're coming back really slowly. I think, you know, a couple, maybe it was a year after the fire, the governor reclassified Paradise as a rural place because there were only about 3,000 people living there. And um, of the 14,000 homes that were lost, it it is just slow going. I think about 1,000 have been rebuilt and there are 2,000 permits per, pulled for more homes. But again, that's just a fraction of what was there before. It's going to be a long time before Paradise looked like it it did. Um, before the campfire, if it ever looks like that again. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, given the number of people that have been displaced in recent years in America because of wildfires and other natural disasters, this is a story that is going to become more rather than less familiar to us in the coming decades. Exactly. You know, I think that that's something that we can really learn from looking at paradise, realizing that it, it doesn't stand alone. There are so many other places that will join its ranks, unfortunately. And we need to realize that and not just assume it won't happen. Yeah. All right. Well, an important reminder to close things out on. We have been speaking one last time to Lizzie Johnson. She is an enterprise reporter for The Washington Post. Her new book is Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. Lizzie Johnson, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.